Marie Antoinette, the queen whose very name is synonymous with opulence and extravagance. She danced through the lavish halls of Versailles, adorned in silk and diamonds, seemingly untouched by the struggles of the people outside the palace gates. But as the French Revolution loomed on the horizon, the gilded world of Marie Antoinette would come crashing down. In a time when the divide between the rich and the poor reached a boiling point, Marie Antoinette became a symbol of the monarchy's excess. Let them eat cake. She allegedly quipped when uh, told about the peasants had no bread. Whether she actually said this or not remains to be seen, but they encapsulate the disconnect between the royal court and the suffering masses. As the storm of the revolution gathered strength, Marie Antoinette faced the wrath of a rage populace, the guillotine, once reserved for common criminals, claimed the lives of the monarchy. The queen, once surrounded by luxury, found herself in prison and facing a cold blade of justice. But who was Marie Antoinette? Behind the glittering facade, what led to the unraveling of the French monarchy, and how did the queen meet her tragic end? Join us as we delve into the captivating tale of Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution today on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied, critical, need to know information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome, everyone. I hope you had a fantastic weekend or whatever time frame came before you listening to this. I am Levi, and this is The Remedial Scholar. I'm glad to have you back, and if you are new, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this show. A few things before the content of the day. If you're enjoying the show or you, if you've learned anything fun from it, please go ahead and drop a review wherever possible. The big ones I know of are Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podchaser. And that helps people who haven't found the show uh, do so due to a bump in the algorithm and whatnot. Some real technical stuff that I don't really understand. Probably magic. Anyway, another thing you can do to help us is sharing the show with your friends. That's probably the easiest and costs zero dollars. But if you do want to spend some dollars, you, can, you know, if you're feeling generous, it is that time of year. You can go to the link tree, link tree slash remedial scholar. You can just Google that link tree slash remedial scholar and click on the first link and you can go through that check out the merch including uh design featuring today's topic marie antoinette lastly before we get started is that uh, you should go to the facebook group and join in and have some conversations about the episodes with other people who listen you know just kind of have that community going and that's it let's get the, uh, let's get into some revolution viva la france <laughs> France. Uh, we're back. We've um, been here a few times. First time we went to France was post-World War II topic with the so-called Ugly Carnivals. Then, of course, Joan of Arc and lastly, Napoleon. I haven't watched that movie yet, but I think I'm going to soon, so that's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, sounds like a good self-date opportunity to have with a history nerd, you know? Anyway, Big Hat McGee makes an appearance in this episode as... Of course, you cannot tell the story of the French Revolution without its conclusion, and he was very much involved in that, uh, if you may remember. If not, don't listen to that episode before listening to this one, because it'll make sense chronologically if you just listen to this one first. That's my <laughs> tip of the day. This topic itself wasn't a true request in terms of someone going, you have to do this topic, but it was suggested that I have, you know, merchandise with Marie Antoinette's head on it, or head, uh, that I should probably do an episode regarding her, which is both true and a good idea. So thank you, Hannah, for reminding me that Marie is not just meme material and has a story to be told and that is just what i intend to do today so for the tales of both 
French Revolution and Marie Antoinette go hand in hand, and to tell them both requires a bit of contextualization, as always. Before we get into Marie's lifetime, you know, France's history goes back pretty far, so we don't have to, uh, but we don't really need to go back that far in particular for this topic. But I will lead off with how devastating the Black Death was for France in the 14th century. And it seems random <laughs> because there's, you know, 400 years between those things, but just listen. Uh, there's been an estimated 16 million deaths in the in the country due to the Black Plague, and this was almost a third of their population as the Black Plague claimed a third of pretty much everybody's population at the time. With this, there was a massive loss in both the people to work agricultural land and the people who owned the land as well. Produced goods also fell, but the prices rose to astronomical levels comparatively, as did the prices for many things in the aftermath. The system of serfdom had become less rigid, as the need for workers increased, peasants could be hired on different places instead of being forced to work, you know, only one landowner's property for their entire life. Eventually, the prices of goods fell under the mark of wages and promoted a rise in the standard of living within the peasant level of society. Pretty cool. As this shift occurred, there was an increase in opulence and the more wealthy and fashion uh, became something of a gentle reminder uh, for those who were less than. <laughs> where their plot in life remained. You know, the uh, the rich would start to get really, really out of control with some of their decision-making. And I think that just becomes more obvious as we go through uh, history at this point. Soon after, in 1358, where peasants turned on the local nobility in nor northern France, the Jacquerie Rebe Rebellion, a poignant episode in the annals of medieval France, unfolded in 1358, as I mentioned. And uh, and this kind of coincided with uh, the Hundred Years' War going on, but it wasn't a direct part of it. So this uprising, often termed the Jacquerie, derived its name from the Jacques, or Jacques? Hmm. A common moniker for peasants or commoners, the catalysts for the Jacquerie Rebellion were deeply rooted in grievances of the peasant class, burdened by exorbitant taxes, oppressive feudal dues, and the exploitation of the nobility. The rural population found themselves mired in economic hardships, exacerbated by the profound effect of the Black Death, which had, you know, decimated a significant portion of the population, and in turn pushed the scarcity of labor into a uh, really precarious situation. The scarcity uh, provided some surviving peasants with newfound leverage to demand better working conditions and alleviate their burdensome circumstances. You know, hey, there's not a whole lot of workers around anymore. You want somebody to do this? You don't want to do it? You don't want to muddy your boots? We're going to have to make some changes around here. So that's what that's what they kind of did. The spark that ignited the rebellion emerged in the uh, Boisvaux region and swiftly engulfed the neighboring areas, fueled by pent-up frustration and a desire for emancipation. Peasants rose in a revolt, unleashing a wave of attacks and pillaging against the symbols of their oppression the castles, the bastions of nobility and the clergy. Rebellion gained momentum as a formidable force, challenging the established order despite achieving some initial success. The Jacquerie Rebellion faced a grim turn as feudal forces rallied it to suppress the upright. Alarmed by the challenge to their authority, the nobility responded with ruthless violence, leading to a brutal crackdown, with many rebels paying the ultimate price for their defiance. Retribution meted out by the feudal forces succeeded in quelling the rebellion, but the scars of the conflict lingered on. Despite the fervor and intensity of the Jacquerie Rebellion, its enduring impact on the social structure proved uh, limited, didn't really change a whole lot. Feudal system, although momentarily shaken, persisted in its essential form, with the nobility reasserting their dominance, 
through force and maintaining their grip on power. Economic hardships faced by the peasants persisted as well, serving as a stark reminder that the rebellion, while poignant, uh, did not bring any substantial changes, and this kind of sets the stage, you know. I tell you all of this, so it really seems like tensions between the haves and the have-nots in France and across Europe in general were strained for hundreds of years, and in my opinion, the French Revolution itself has its seed seeds in the post-plague years that I just described. So a few hundred years after the Jacquerie Rebellion is where we get real foundations of the revolution of the 18th century. I would say it begins with Louis version 13, but the reason I say that is because one of the items that I think just speaks to the insane wealth disparity in France started construction during his reign. Now, not really due to his fault, yeah, there's more around the people around him, which I think also speaks to this issue. Versailles, the famous palace, I'm, I'm willing to bet most of you have heard of it. If not, go ahead and just give it a Google. It's an okay building. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Versailles started as a modest hunting lodge that his court felt was not to the standards it should be for the king. Alright, I think that attitude would just continue through the next few Louis, because they just kept, kept coming. They're just continue to add more Louis until the problem got worse. And this uh, emboldened the monarchy and nobles in a particular way, something that had been retroactively termed as ancient regime. I'm not gonna pronounce it in French, but it's written like you're supposed to pronounce it in French, but I'm just not doing that. Following the conclusion of the revolution, uh, noted the poor leadership of the monarchy in the century plus leading up to it, and that's the ancient regime. So France had endured several, year, uh, several wars during the 17th century, including the Franco-Dutch War, Nine Years' War, war reunions all of the wars war of the worlds <laughs> no um the turn of the century was the biggest though the war of spanish succession charles ii of spain had no heirs to his throne and when he was sick and eventually died in 1700 before charles had died he willed his throne to philip v who was the grandson of louis the 14th this made basically all of europe <laughs> that didn't ally itself with france pretty nervous because Spain had a lot of really lucrative opportunities, especially in the New World. From 1701 to 1714, Europe was engulfed in war to prevent France from absorbing so much power, but it was resolved eventually in the Treaty of Utrecht, in which Philip was confirmed as the King of Spain, but renounced any claims to the French throne, which, you know, that kind of removes any temptation for guaranteed alliance, so I guess it makes things a little bit better, a little less biased. Things were relatively peaceful after this, which is, you know, good and bad. Good in that there were no major wars going on for the next, like, 40 years, but bad in the fact that the population was now growing very rapidly, and this is also attributed to some of the advances in better medicine care. I wouldn't say modern because not quite there yet, but better medicinal care, which helped with infant mortality, and by helped, I mean, like, lowered infant mortality. <laughs> I've worded that very poorly. Anyway, the previously stagnant population of France had not grown from the 16th to the 18th century and then went from 20 to 28 million between the years 1715 and 1789. So that's kind of a big deal, right? The large population was contrasted by the lack of jobs to match its growth and this led to an estimated 8 to 12 million people in poverty at that time. There's also the question of the debt that had now gone uh, that the now gone Louis XIV had racked up during his tenure with all the wars and military movements or frivolous spending. His successor, Louis XV, was not much better. I mean, there was, like I mentioned, peace for the first part of his reign, but ended in 1740 when they were involved in the War of Austrian Succession. So many successions. Makes me want to watch that show. Anyway, Louis XV had even left the safety of the previously 
mentioned Versailles and traveled to the Netherlands during the conflict and there's really interesting and a fascinating quote from this endeavor that I wanted to share with you. In the Battle of Fontenoy, Louis brought his son, Louis, but not that Louis, but a different Louis that is the son of a Louis. Actually, that Louis is the Louis son, this Louis son. That makes sense. Congratulations, because that is a massive ascent. Louis Ferdinand, who would have been 16 at the time of the battle, had been ecstatic seeing all of the dead enemy soldiers on the field of battle, and this provided his father, Louis XV, a teaching moment. He told his son, you see what a victory costs. The blood of our enemies is still the blood of men. The true glory is to spare it. I really like that quote. <laughs> uh, and I think we could all do a little bit better, you know, to consider that as humans. I know many do, but not enough in my opinion. Anyway, that war was really costly on the France, pushing them close to bankruptcy. Pretty much every year further that into the war they went, they were just closer and closer. After the war, Louis aimed to reduce debts by modernizing the uh, taxation system. He tried to model it after the uh, United Kingdom didn't work as well. His finance minister, Darnouville, crafted reforms approved by the king in 1749. First measure issued bonds to pay off war debt uh, successfully. Uh, it was successful, but it faced resistance. The second abolished a uh, the current tax system, replacing it with a new one where all of the citizens were taxed. Resistance grew from the nobility and the church, leading to clashes with parliament. The king faced opposition even with pa within Paris, notably the Hopital general dispute. The conflict highlighted the emerging tensions between the legislature and the king. Louis' plans to tax the church faced difficulty, as it always does, unfortunately, with clergy resistance. A new decree canceled the tax, relying on the voluntary church donations instead. Despite victories, the war persisted in the Netherlands and in Italy at the same time. Louis proposed the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle in 1748, offering pretty generous terms. The end of the war brought celebration, but the treaty deta uh, details caused dismay. Charles Edward Stuart's arrest and the return of conquered territories angered the French. Louis defended his actions practically by, and religiously, em emphasizing contentment over territorial expansion. However, the public perceived the outcome negatively, dubbing it as uh, stupid as the peace and expressing bitterness. Louis XV's peace with the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle lasted only seven years. In 1755, Empress Maria Theresa of Austria proposed a secret alliance with France to counter the growing threats from Prussia and Britain. Meanwhile, conflict in the New World escalated into the French and Indian War, uh, as it is known, with France facing demographic challenges against Britain. In response, British actions in response to British actions, Louis sent an ultimatum to London, but it was rejected. Frederick the Great of Prussia allied with Britain, prompting Louis to form a defensive treaty with Austria. Louis declared war on Britain in 1756, confident of success initially. French victories in the Mediterranean and on the continent were followed by setbacks, notably the Battle of Rossbach in 1757. British naval supremacy hindered French overseas reinforcements, leading to the loss of colonies and serious defeats. The British victory at Quiberon Bay in 1759 dashed Louis' hopes of invading England. In 1760, Montreal surrendered, marking the end of French rule in Canada. Martinique fell to the British in 1762, concluding a challenging period for Louis XV. This compounded with poor economic management of the French treasury not having the funds payments to whoever needed them and thus had to take out loans just to maintain normal businesses. Taxes were heavy to try to put the economy back into balance on the heels of all the military conflicts. So 
the situation at the beginning of the revolution is that <laughs> and i will break into it a little bit more but this is a good spot to bring in the lady of the day now i just spoke about maria Theresa and her secret alliance with the french in 1755 and that's not all she did in 1755 she also gave birth to a bouncing baby girl named maria antonia josepha joanna <laughs> named maria antonia josepha joanna on november 2nd 1755 happy belated also quinkadink alert in May of 1754, one of the things that led to growing animosity between the British and the French was a young colonel's ambush and defeat of French recon group in the New World. This event and subsequent other actions led to the outbreak of the Seven Years' War and the alliance of Austria and France. That colonel? A little guy named George Washington. So, <laughs> is it his fault that Marie Antoinette ascended to the throne in France and also lost her head? Probably. No. <laughs> but it is a fun coincidence, right? I love looking at moments that could have gone, like could have given way to other things that happened in history but anyway back to marie or maria or whatever her real name is anyway she was the 15th yes mothers in the audience you heard that right 15 children <laughs> in the 18th century that sounds worse than going on a cruise sponsored by ferdinand magellan if i do say so myself she wasn't even the youngest but she was the youngest girl so i guess there's that there's 16 in total which is which is just insane to me her father francis the first happiest man of all time no <laughs> of the holy roman empire um marie which i will now call her to differentiate from her mother maria they both had maria maria Theresa is her mother but marie Marie Antoinette was said to have been an adorable little baby. Big blue eyes, little baby, blonde girl hair, so, you know, all springy and, like, silly looking. She's described as uh, being especially cheerful and happy as a child. Good. <laughs> your mom's the empress <laughs> of Austria and your dad's the Holy Roman Emperor. You probably shouldn't be too upset. She was a daddy's girl. Uh, and allegedly her father's favorite which is impressive since there was hundreds of children to choose from now another weird event that ties marie to another major person in history is uh that since she grew up in austria and was the same age as another famous child from this country can you guess who i'm going to be bringing up next you guessed adolf hitler you're right no i'm <laughs> just kidding uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born in January of 1756, making Marie a few months older than him. How about that? In 1762, Schönbrunn Palace was the meeting place of the two six-year-olds, although there were disputes as to what, if any, interaction that they might have shared. What is known is that the project prodigy met with the royal family and performed for them at this time, even jumping into Mama Maria's lap excitedly and giving her a big ol' smooch, yeah, as a six-year-old is often wont to do. <laughs> There are a few versions of how the unverified interaction between the musician and the future queen. The one I like the most is that he had slipped on a rug and she helped him to his feet, which prompted him to say, You are good. I will marry you. And Mama Maria asked why he would say something so silly, because all she did was help him off the ground, and Mo Mozart responded, uh, Out of gratitude, she is good with me. Like, uh, she helped me up. That's good enough. I would marry somebody that helped me up, I guess. <laughs> maybe I am. Maybe I am Mozart. Anyway, I'm not exactly sure where this comes from, but to his own father, uh, did not, you know, I'm not exactly sure where this comes from, but his own father did not write about this, and he wrote a lot down, so. Also, Mozart probably needs to be added to my list of topics, so let me know if that would interest you at all. Aside from rubbing elbows with one of the most famous musicians of ever, <laughs> ever to walk the earth, young Marie's childhood was that of, was, was one that many would expect for a princess at the time. Marie Antoinette's childhood unfolded with the opulent confines of the Habsburg court, where the weight of her 
aristocratic lineage and the intricate web of European politics bore down on her young shoulders. Her life carried both the privileges and burdens of the royal status. A lot of boring adult talking, I'm assuming, you know, <laughs> she's just this little kid like wanting to just a ball of energy is what I've read. And <laughs> I can't imagine like being a kid in those kinds of environments. Like, it always cracks me up to see, like, little princes, you know, and they're like, oh, all buttoned up. And I'm like, that kid just wants to, like, run around, probably throw his diaper at somebody, but you got them all dotted up, meeting president. Anyway, from the onset, Marie Antoinette's upbringing was meticulously cura curated to prepare her for the demanding role that awaited her. Education, The educational foundation laid for her was tailored to the expectations of a future queen, emphasizing refinement and cultural aptitude, literary suits exposed her to great works of European literature, fostering, you know, intellectual development. Meanwhile, her musical education and still love for the arts and dance lessons honed her grace and poise. She also had etiquette classes. But here's the thing. Her teacher was a family friend at this point. So you'll find out she kind of slacked off. In the multicultural environment of the Habsburg court, language learning became a priority. Marie Antoinette not only mastered her native German, but uh, started learning different ones like French. This this would be valuable eventually, but, uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Marie Antoinette's childhood, while privileged, was not without its challenges. The expectations placed upon her as future queen, combined with the ever-present scrutiny of the court life, set the stage for a tumultuous adulthood. She also uh, was kind of afraid of her mom, which makes sense. Her mom sounds like a scary lady. Also, most of the girls in the family that I've read about also had an issue with her mom, but her mom definitely disliked her older sister more like she didn't like her at all but i think she liked marie antoinette quite a bit anyway <laughs> that's neither here nor there but it wasn't all like i said it wasn't all sunshines and rainbows in the fa royal family two of her siblings had died due to smallpox by the time she turned eight her parents stressed with many global conflicts at the time going on when she was almost 10 marie had her last goodbye with her father the family was traveling to innsbruck for her brother Leopold's wedding. The carriage caravan was late to leave and this was because Francis just wanted to say, you know, he wanted a good goodbye from his daughter, which kind of annoyed his wife, whatever. That's tales all this time. This goodbye was the last one to be exchanged between the father and daughter who, you know, she would never see him again and the next time she saw her mother, it was also a different woman having lost her husband. One thing I read, which I found to be pretty intriguing is that, like I said, she's not super good in school pursuits. She resembled her father in this regard which I wonder if like he saw a lot of himself in her and that's why they were so close or maybe it's just because she was the youngest girl and he finally softened up I don't know anyway she had uh, no desire to read it took her a long time to learn to write properly being very impatient in these attempts the effort was made that she show her school work to her mother but since she wasn't doing it the governess in charge of her basically like her her specific like watcher wrote it down in pencil before giving it back to her so she could trace it over with ink so that's kind of sweet and human makes me think that she had probably something and i hesitate to diagnose historical subject because I'm not qualified to do so, but I think she might have had ADD at the very least. Anyway, if you're familiar with the story of Marie Antoinette, you probably know that her childhood wasn't super long either. Mama Maria needed her daughters to act as security for the empire and their alliances. 
She needed a daughter to marry into the spot of to return interest to their inheritance within Italy and also to France to secure that alliance, you know, a little further. Two of her daughters moved into life within the church, so they're out. One daughter was in love with a prince in a German village, but her mother forbade it and she was assigned to the Duke of Parma, Ferdinand I. Marie Antoinette almost avoided marriage altogether and her older sister Maria Elizabeth almost married King Louis XV after his wife had died. Issue of this was that Maria Elizabeth had a bout of smallpox and her face was scarred because of this. He had sent a portrait artist to Vienna and he confirmed that the scarring of the disease had affected her face and the marriage was called off. So that's not good. In June of 1769, Louis XV sent a letter to Maria Theresa which he confirmed the potential union of his successor and her daughter Maria Marie Antoinette. This is when her previously unquestioned education <laughs> came back to haunt her. See, Maria Theresa had swapped out Marie's governess for one who was a little more skillful to prepare her for the apex of European society, which was France. This is so fancy. <laughs> this new lady was especially tough and did a thorough job, and it was very quickly that she learned that Marie was, uh, you know, not up to snuff on some of the things. You know, things like speaking gracefully in French or knowing how to read and write in any language. <laughs> uh, the 13-year-old was subsequently pushed into some serious learning. Maria Teresa was not taking any chances and did not want to be embarrassed, so she brought in the best of the best to teach her youngest daughter to prepare her for her fancy life. She brought in experts in every discipline that she needed to know. I like to imagine this part of Marie Antoinette's life as basically the first half of the movie Miss Congeniality. If you're unfamiliar, Sandy Bullock, can't miss. Anyway, she's an FBI agent who can covertly infiltrates the Miss America pageant and so Sir Michael Caine is assigned to her as an etiquette instructor. That was that was Marie's life though. She was given a tutor from Versailles even to assist in the task of getting her up to speed. This tutor had some interesting words to say about working together and he wrote after devoting my first instructions to the subject of acquainting myself with the turn of mind and the degree of her royal highness's knowledge I arranged the method of learning I consider most useful to Madame Archduchess. In order to diminish the wearisome nature of the studies, I keep them as much as possible to the forms of conversation. I cannot speak highly enough of the docility and goodwill of Her Royal Highness, but her liveliness and frequent distractions militate insensibility <laughs> against her desire to learn. Listen, I'm pretty sure I got that same letter in one of my report cards uh, growing up. No, <laughs> he reported in other letters that she remained distraction prone and needed to be entertained to properly learn. Speaking that she would rarely make mistakes in spelling, she could only give if she could only give her undivided attention, which I feel points to more to the suspicion of her having ADD. I don't know. I say this as somebody who is afflicted, so don't think I'm like, eh, she can't focus, she has a disorder, because it's not like that. It's not like that. I do think she had a lot going on. She's also, you know, 13. Uh, she's She's got a big life going on, big things, big, uh, big marriage coming up impending kingdom alliances, the weight of her mother's approval, and, you know, she's also 13, 14 at this time. <laughs> Super typical teenage stuff. All things considered, there were a lot of things on the mind of the 14-year-old, uh, you know, duchess or not. Either way, soon both families were being brought together in April 1770. There was a state dinner that sat 1,500 people. What state dinner isn't complete without a masked ballroom dancing, you know, fireworks, gold and silver plates, all the things. Weirdly, the wedding wasn't even a true wedding. On April 19, 1770, a proxy wedding was held in which her brother Ferdinand 
stood in for her groom. I guess the rules don't matter, but it seems to me like she's married to her brother also at this point. So how do you have a proxy wedding where the person is not there so somebody else stands? Like, that's, you're now married, man. I don't, <laughs> that's the rich. You couldn't have a painting sitting there or something, like just a little sticky note on a chair. This is Louis. <laughs> the official wedding happened on May 16th, 1770 in Versailles, and some of the weirdest traditions occurred. Also bad omens as well. Apparently, it was rather stormy, which some consider bad luck, but others also consider it good luck on the wedding day. Another thing that happened in the weeks following the extravagant display of a wedding, which saw 5,000 guests and 200,000 people watching fireworks outside. Unfortunately, that display of fireworks also led to an incident in which 132 people died, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, there was a malfunction, I guess, if you could call it that, and 132 people died from the fireworks, and then potentially maybe as many as 800 in the following stampede of people fleeing the scene. So, so there's that. And also, weirder than that, there's a ritual called, uh, or a thing called ritual bedding, which is not as bad as it sounds, but I don't know here. <laughs> like, I understand things were different back then, but come on, man. What, what is this? The goal was to make sure that the day of marriage ended in consummation. Otherwise, it could be annulled in this point invalid. The good news is I guess they didn't actually like, like the actual act of consummation of the marriage was not witnessed most of the time, but it was just a way to get the bride and groom into the bedroom together and then people witness them laying in the bed together like, oh, they share a bed now and then they just kind of partied in there before dipping out and letting them do their thing. So strange looking back on such a normal thing for these people and going, yeah, so all these adults <laughs> so, <laughs> and going, so all these adults uh, took these 14 year olds and locked them in a bedroom together so they could do the nasty you know, different times, I guess. One small victory for the story is that while, yes, she was a child bride at 14, her husband was only a year older than her, so that's good, not great, but better than him being some 50-year-old weirdo. Apparently, the deed was also not done <laughs> that day, nor would it be done for upwards of seven years after they were married. A lot of uh, R-rated, X-rated maybe even details about this that I have unfortunately had to read in the research for this episode. This is actually a big part of their dysfunctional marriage and I wish it wasn't because then I wouldn't have to explain some of these things to you, but provide some information on some of these without being too graphic and also to highlight the issues within their political consequences of not actually having sex. The issue is that four years after their marriage, Louis XV died and Louis XVI was crowned king and that of course means Marie Antoinette was made queen. There were still no children and this was odd. It was odd in general, but because you were king and queen, you, you have babies. That's just your thing. Even the supposedly closeted kings or queens did so, you know, took one for the proverbial team essentially. Not saying that that's right, but that's what happened. So the lack of children bothered many in the royal court, but also mother-in-law drama. Empress Maria Theresa, Mama Theresa, not pumped about this. And in more family meddling in a marriage than I would normally entertain, I have to include this because it made me laugh. Maria Theresa signs Marie's own brother, Joseph II, Holy Roman Emperor at the time, to investigate what's happening. Joseph was the oldest son, and apparently he was the sex sleuth that everybody needed. So he travels to France for the first time in his life in 1776 just to see what the issue is. He does so incognito so people don't know who he is or why he's there, but whatever it was, it was fixed, and the couple welcomed their first child in December of 1778. So what are the proposed issues? Well, first, a medical issue, which Louis may have suffered from, phimosis or phimosis. I don't know. Don't look it up. <laughs> don't. Definitely don't look at pictures of it. 
I'm still scarred. Anyway, that's the that's the suspected issue, the main suspected issue. So this next section might get slightly biological, just so you know, if you got children in the car or whatever. Earmuffs. Uh, phimosis is an issue in which the foreskin would not retract upon an erection. So that's an issue. That makes sense. Like, I, I guess why he was weary of the necessary surgical procedure to fix that issue, and I can't blame him there. Especially for the time. You want to cut what? Hmm? When most people die from, like, <laughs> scabs? No, I don't think so. Joseph recommended, <laughs> as, the, as the good brother-in-law would, recommended that he do this procedure. But they did end up having four children, so maybe he did. But there's some other theories out there. These include him being asexual. As Marie had written a letter to her mother stating that the issue was not on her desires, but on his willingness to participate. This is also compounding with something that Joseph would state. I have that coming here in a minute. <laughs> Another supposed theory is that uh, that Louis was, well, um, that he was packing. And that was an issue for her. One of the correspondences from Joseph stated that Louis' methodology of the act of intercourse was not great. Quoting, he introduces the member, stays there without moving for two minutes, and then withdraws without completion and bids goodnight. Erection and tell. So, that's not, that's not good. Not making any kids that way. Really. <laughs> Nobody's getting... <laughs> So anyway, that's what we got in terms of potentially impotent issues. Uh, later on, there are suspected affairs that would that the public would blame on Marie, but they're mostly un unsubstantiated. All right, so let's move in Marie's timeline a bit. I feel like that took a little too much time. After the marriage, Marie had some issues trying to fit in with her new place in life. Her father-in-law's mistress was particularly turbulent. Part of this issue, Madame du Barry was also politically connected and was seen as a source of some anti-Austrian rhetoric that was occurring within the court. Big problem since the queen is of Austrian descent. <laughs> Two days after the death of Louis XV, Louis XVI had Dubarry ousted, and I'm willing to bet this made Marie pretty happy. Another thing to make the young queen happy? Castles. Queens love castles. Uh, two weeks after the death of his father, Louis XVI gave Marie Petit, Petit Trianon, a chateau on the property of Versailles. Sounds like a nice gesture. I've seen pictures. It's okay. His father had it built for one of his mistresses, and the other part of his gift was that Marie was allowed to redecorate to her heart's content. And that's that's pretty adorable. I mean, who doesn't who doesn't give a chateau that their father built for his side piece to their new queen? I do it all the time. <laughs> Soon her extravagance was that of all of France commoners was uh, talking about. Talk of the town, really. Which is you know, gonna be really good for her down the road. Even if it was just all rumors, it's clearly something that they all took to heart. Marie Antoinette indulged in a life of opulence and luxury, seemingly oblivious to the severe financial crisis and widespread suffering plaguing the nation. So she was given this chateau and it is suspected that she redecorated the walls with silver and gold trims and like jewels all over the place. Remains to be seen if that's actually what happened, but that's what people thought she was doing, which is... The perception is probably worse than the reality, but the perception for these people is what mattered the most. Renowned designer Rose Burton uh, played a significant role in crafting the Queen's extravagant wardrobe, featuring elaborate dresses and intricate hairstyles such as poofs and towering panache that 
adorned with feather plumes symbolizing the pinnacle of luxury. Despite the economic turmoil gripping the country, Marie Antoinette and her court defiantly embraced English fashion trends incorporating materials like IDN, uh, percale, and muslin into their uh, attire. Notably, the IDN, once banned in France until 1759 to protect local industries, became a prominent feature in the Queen's wardrobe. Amidst the nation's financial hardships, Marie Antoinette's court stood as a defiant symbol of opulence and fashion dominance. 1775 unfolded and the flower war erupted. Public sentiment underwent a drastic shift. Riots erupted due to soaring prices of flour and bread, casting Marie Antoinette as a focal point to blame in the economic distress. Why? Because she powdered her hair with flour. <laughs> she's, she's putting crazy stuff in her hair and people are like, hey man, I would like to bake some bread. <laughs> Can I borrow your hair for a minute? Can I borrow a cup of hair? Her once glamorous reputation now bore the weight of public disapproval. Criticism surged against the queen for her perceived fiscal irresponsibility as her lavish expenditures starkly contrasted with the nation's financial struggles. Even her mother, Maria Theresa, expressed concern over Marie Antoinette's spending habits foreseeing the potential for civil unrest. She's been around a while. Mama knows best. She, uh thought that civil unrest would arise from such perceived extravagance. Queen's once illustrious image was now starting to flounder. Public perception of the royal family was slipping. The disparity of wealth between all of them was very obvious and growing more so as the days continued. Now, the birth of the first child helped. After that weird intervention by her brother Joseph, Marie Therese Charlotte was born on December 19, 1778. Also, not a normal birth, of course not. Why would it be? <laughs> she was required, uh, Marie was required to give birth in front of a live studio audience. Thanks to the rules of Louis XIV, this was a rule he instituted to confirm no imposter children were snuck in or maybe to prevent, you know, rabbit mothers from taking hold again. No, <laughs> Mary Toff was after this time, but around the t this time in history, but it was after his time, if you remember from the hoax episode. If not, go check it out. The birth itself was a struggle. She labored for 12 hours, and she had even fainted at one point. People thought she had died, but she obviously woke up later. She was delighted at the sight of her daughter, even though the public wished for a son. She declared to her child, You shall be mine. You shall have my undivided care, shall share my happiness, and console me in my troubles. Very sweet. Of course, this child was a source of more scandal as, you know, without an offspring for eight years, one finally appeared. It was understandable that people would be curious, but I mean, come on, just, just let him have the baby. The next year, Marie Antoinette compounded the hesitancy of accepting her as the queen with insistence on France entering into different political dealings that supported missions of Austria more so than France. Because some of this relationship building, the first league of the armed neutrality came to power to protect neutral naval trade. Marie was also insistent on Louis XVI involving France in the American Revolution. So the George Washington thing comes full circle. I think it's pretty common knowledge that without the help of France, the American Revolution may not have ended, ended as well as we might Americans like to believe, but it's neither here nor there. 1779, Marie Antoinette had become pregnant once again, but unfortunately this pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. This would become something that would strain her relationship with her husband. She would again become pregnant in March of 1781, and the three pregnancies in a few years continued to spur rumors that swirled around her newfound fertility. Girl cannot catch a break with these rumors. First, you're upset she's not making babies. Now she's making too many, and you're suspicious about her fidelity because of this. Figured out. This feels like the very thing America Ferreira's character was talking about in Barbie. Anyway, some bad news before the third pregnancy would take place. Mama Maria Teresa died on November 29th. 
1780. The second full pregnancy resulted in a true heir, Louis Joseph Xavier Francois, the little man born on October 22nd, 1781. Luckily, less people were there to watch this time thanks to her husband realizing the traumatic experience the last time. You might think now that she has two kids is probably not able to do all the fancy traditional parts of her royal duties. Things like waking up ceremonies and royal audiences, public meals, fanciful friends, anything like that. No, the royal court managed, uh, they had people manage the children for her as she was required to attend a lot of these appearances despite being a mother. She had, uh, she had grown her own inner circle over the course of her mother of her newfound motherhood adding people into her confidence that were more in tune with her personality one of these people was count Furson, axel von Furson, who had returned from america and assisted rochambeau against the british in the colonies which is pretty cool Furson was one that many suspected was having an affair and that's kind of why i said mostly before unsubstantiated when discussing the affairs earlier up until a few years ago the affairs were rumors and nothing more any letters and messages that had been exchanged between the two had been lost to history destroyed or redacted but there was some x-rays some fancy new technology that they were able to use on some of the surviving letters that exposed some messages and proved that the affair was actual reality some dakota messages having the count espousing his love for the queen to which she replied that my heart is all yours and i love you madly you don't say that to just some random dude you can chalk it up to flowery victorian like language but that's not a thing like you <laughs> if you're a queen you're not writing that to just some random dude like you talk to your husband that way and that's it unless you love somebody else so that's pretty interesting and the timing is also important to note after Furson shows back up is widely assumed thanks to his newer information uh, this newer information that they held this affair until the bitter end more on that later could have been obvious to the public because this was uh around the same time that pornographic literature began to circulate involving the queen and many many other people sometimes it was her and any men of the royal court but also women to which was especially disgruntling from the french this is part of this weird austrian hate that they had for this lady and they even had a derogatory term which they referred to any homosexual acts as german vices rumors continued as the birth of the second son louis charles occurred on march of 1785 it's another questionable moment as it followed the return of count first by nine months now this is conflicting with the fact that the king and queen had spent a lot of time exactly nine months prior to the birth around when conception would have occurred but these people aren't going to let pesky things like facts get in the way of their hatred towards the lady the pamphlets of her sexual uh, sexuality and escapades continued becoming more egregious as time went on they will continue to enter the sphere <laughs> around her some stating that she held orgies in the gardens at versailles and more lesbian propaganda the rumors also continued with her spending habits although those are a little more proven you know it's hard to say that you're frugal with money when you have a model ship displayed in your hair for a party because that happened <laughs> the continued spending on dresses parties and everything was like put solely on her shoulders and it's odd because she had chosen some people in her inner circle in the royal court pushed back said that some of these people were too closely related to commoners they weren't of high enough stock for her or where she chose to spend her time was below her means and the optics of the situation didn't favor the crown so sometimes the spending was true and obvious as people might see her at public appearances and you know extravagant outfits but it was also often exaggerated to further slander marie one thing that really put her in the targets of many people 
people, the final straw for a lot of the boiling over common people of France was that of the diamond necklace scandal. Now, the diamond necklace scandal was one of significant event during the 18th century in France that played a role in further damaging Marie Antoinette's reputation. The scandal revolved around an extravagant diamond necklace that was commissioned by jewelers Charles Balmer and Paul Bassange on behalf of Louis XV for his mistress, mistress, the one that was exiled, <laughs> kicked out of the thing, Madame Dubarry. However, Louis XV died before he could purchase the necklace and his successor, successor Louis XVI, refused to buy it for the queen due to his, its exorbitant cost. Enter Jean de la Mont, a charismatic and scheming adventuress. She convinced Cardinal de Rohan, a clergyman with a notorious reputation that she had the queen's favor and could facilitate the purchase of said necklace. In reality, Marie Antoinette had nothing to do with the transaction and the cardinal was being deceived in 1785 believing that he was enacting on behalf of the queen, Cardinal de Rohan agreed to buy the necklace for a staggering sum. To finance the purchase, Lamont engaged in a complex series of fraudulent transactions convincing the jeweler to hand it over, uh, hand over the necklace to a fake messenger who never even paid. And then the necklace disappeared. When the jewelers demanded payment for the cardinal, uh, the scandal was unraveled. It became public and leading to a trial known as the Affair of the Diamond Necklace. Court proceedings were highly publicized and revealed the extent of the deception and manipulation involved. Cardinal de Rohan, along with Jean de Lamont and her accomplices were arrested and tried. Marie Antoinette, although innocent in the affair, became target of public outrage and further damaged her reputation. The scandal added to the growing discontent against the monarchy and contributed to anti-aristocratic sentiments that would eventually escalate into the French Revolution. In the same year, 1785, Marie would give birth to one more son, Louis Charles, and then Sophie the next year. Sophie would be her last child and she would pass in infancy only 11 months as she had lived. This was compounded in 1789 when her first son, Louis Joseph, passed away due to an ongoing battle with tuberculosis. Things would continue to spiral out of control for the queen as the, and company as the popularity of herself as well as the monarchy in general was dwindling. Amidst the deterioration of France's financial situation, King Louis XVI sought guidance from his wife and she was starting to get a little more politically active. The queen attempted to mediate tensions between the assembly and the king, signaling the end of the polygnacs influence on the crown's finances. Despite attempts to cut back royal expenses, the financial crisis persisted, leading to the controversial assembly of notables after uh, convening of the leading to the convening of the assembly of notables after a 160-year hiatus. The assembly failed to enact reforms and the accusations arose that the queen, absent from its meetings, was undermining its purpose. At the queen's urging, Louis XVI dismissed the finance minister, Cologne, in April of 1787. Archbishop Brienne, a political ally of Marie Antoinette, replaced Cologne but failed to improve the financial situation. The Assembly of Notables dissolved in May 1787, blamed for its inability to address the crisis, further tarnishing the Queen's image. She was now being <laughs> labeled, <laughs> she was now being publicly dubbed Madame Deficit. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is pretty funny. Um, and yeah, so because of her involvement in, in these issues, that's why they started throwing that around. Now, there was some counter-propaganda going on. There was some efforts to portray her as a caring mother, including... Uh, you know, public paintings, different paintings to improve her image, showing her with her children. However, damaging uh, slander from Jean de Valois Saint-Remy 
what a crazy French name that, and the Queen's involvement in the exiling uh, the Parliament to Troyes fueled negative perceptions. The political situation worsened as Louis XVI attempted to impose legislation leading to protests and exile of the Duke of Orléans. Marie Antoinette's involvement in key decisions continued, including reinstating Jacques... Uh, <laughs> Alright, this guy's last name is Necker, N-E-C-K-E-R. I want to spell that out because I don't <laughs> I don't feel confident just saying it without it sounding offensive. So, uh, as <laughs> they instituted Jacques here as finance minister in August of 1788, the queen accepted Jacques' proposal to increase the representation of the third estate, the third estate being the part of the representation body known as the estates general, the third estate being that of the common people, the second was the nobility, and the first being the clergy. The first two were exempt from taxes, only compromised. <laughs> and only comprised the 500,000 people for the, the entire country. Now, do you remember how many people there were in France at the time? This is 28 million. <laughs> so those were the taxpayers, the 28 million. And those were the working class of the time. The third estate eventually splintered even further with outside forces working to grease the palms of the representatives that the you know, the bourgeoisie became exempt within the third estate. So it was basically just farmers, peasants, and workers who grew more angry with this as things progressed. And then the other groups were kind of like feeding into them because... There are some groups within those other ones, specifically nobles, that may have been anti-monarchy that were trying to, like, absorb more power. Because if there's less power for the monarchy, there's more power for them to take, essentially. As the Estates General convened in May of 1789, the fracture between the Third Estate and the nobility widened. The death of the Dauphin in June went unnoticed amidst, amid rising tensions. Then Marie Antoinette's role became pivotal as a revolution loomed with her determination to resist popular demands for reforms readiness to use force to crush these rebellion or this revolutionary talk that was happening in the throes of june of 1789 the atmosphere became charged as the third estate accompanied by the clergy and radical nobility encountered the king's resistance to their assembly faced with the closure of the designated meeting place they defiantly gathered at the tennis court in versailles collectively swearing the tennis court oath with the shared goal of crafting a constitution as july unfolded the dismissal of jacques the guy from earlier at the behest of marie Antoinette, fueled discontent in paris sparking riots which crescendoed into a momentous storming of the Bastille on July 14th. This is celebrated every year as Bastille Day in France. The specter of political unrest prompted members of the aristocracy to embark on a wave of immigration motivated by a palpable fear of imminent assassination. Yeah, you better run. In a pivotal move, come August, the National Cons uh, Constituent Assembly took decisive action, abolishing feudal privileges and thereby laying the foundation for the nascent constitutional monarchy with the help of former ambassador to France, Mr. Thomas Jefferson, I've heard of him, as well as American revolutionary Marquis de Lafayette. <laughs> Just reading his name, I want to, like, makes me think of Hamilton. Anyway, amidst these transformative shifts, life within the court continued its uh, semblance of normalcy. However, the tempest of change was not abated. By October, a fervent Parisian crowd descended upon Versailles, coercing the royal family's relocation to Tillery Palace in Paris. Here, they lived under a form of house arrest under their, uh, their every move observed by Lafayette and the vigilant Garde Nationale. With National Guard. <laughs> Lafayette assumed the guardianship as uh, commander-in-chief of the National Guard for the royal family. Despite mutual antipathy between Lafayette and the Queen, their collabor collaboration was facilitated by persuasive efforts of Paris's mayor, Jean-Sylvain Bailey. Despite Marie 
Antoinette's deliberate attempts to remain discreet about and out of the public eye. Scandalous publications levied false accusations against her. More propaganda. This time, she's having an affair with Lafayette, whom she openly disliked. Perfect cover story. <laughs> uh, the... So this circulated, you know, around Paris. These publications would soon be used as evidence against the Queen as the charges mounted up during the Revolution. The royal families all but excluded from Paris proper, finding life easier to live in a remote chateau away from the dagger-filled eyes of the public. From their secret base, Marie forged political alliances trying to save the monarchy in the eyes of the people. From 1790 on, Gabriel Requetti, the Count, of Mirabeau was one such ally. They had agreed on terms that he would be paid should he be able to convince the people to let the king assume power once again, full power. Some events were held where uh, the royal family attended and the king was even cheered for and as was the new dolphin when he was shown to the crowd by Marie. She might have even gotten some cheering too. This was contrasted to the following March when the royals attempted to attend an Easter mass which was prevented by a growing crowd and even some of the national guard that were to protect both parties. This action put Marie and the family in fight or flight mode and their plan was now to escape. June 21st, 1791, an escape plot was hatched. The queen, her children, and the king dressed as commoners and a carriage awaited them that would soon rush them to freedom. The carriage was even driven by the affair having Count Furzen. So that's pretty cool that he's helping everybody out. They were identified, though, and subsequently arrested. And this leads me to believe that their commoner outfits were not that creative. No, the um, the main issue was that they, you know, they dressed as commoners, but then they decided against Furzen's plans of using multiple smaller carriages and splitting the family up, and instead using one giant carriage that was whole pulled by six horses which you know only rich people have a six horse carriage you know what i'm saying it was not helpful in their secret getaway and even if they had gotten away they were working their way to a fortified citadel which was run by royalists but would this have been enough to prevent the revolution from continuing i kind of doubt it i mean they would have been on they would just been fleeing the rest of the time public was really scorned by the escape attempt this essentially shot down any hopes they had of making it out of this thing in one piece Family was arrested, but trial was not yet held. It was staved off thanks to some po politicians who took pity on them. It was also during this time that the legend of uh, Marie Antoinette's hair turning bright white overnight occurred. Things were not isolated to the royal immediate family. The Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II, Marie's brother who has succeeded her older brother, the sex sleuth Joseph, uh, as well as the Prussian King Frederick, had signed a declaration of war against the people of France. Wishing to save the royals, the declaration happened in April of 1792 and two months prior, Marie had seen Count Fersen for the last time. The declaration was mutual as France also declared war in April of 1792 and this profound shift not only painted the queen as a symbol of enmity, but also exacerbated pre-existing tensions within the intricate tapestry of French monarchy, complicating matters. Further, rumors swirled accusing Marie Antoinette of clandestine involvement, leaking military secrets to Austrians, further stoking the fires of public animosity directed at her. The war declared by Austria and Prussia was basically like, hey, we're gonna level Paris if you don't if you don't let them go. <laughs> Just pretty hardcore. Against this backdrop, the political landscape of France teetered on the edge of instability as Louis XVI wielded his veto power that was pretty much all the power he had left, earning the royal couple the derisive monikers of Monsieur Vito and Madame Vito. <laughs> and this was because she was a vet, uh, allegedly telling him when he should and shouldn't veto things. The queen found solace in the support of her advisor, Barnav, who steadfastly aligned himself with her demands. However, the prevailing winds of 
moderation gradually shifted, paving the way for the ascendancy of radio of the radical Girondin majority within legislative assembly. Marie Antoinette's unwavering refusal to collaborate with the Girondins triggered accusations of treason, dealing a severe blow to her and the king's authority. The culmination of these tensions erupted in June of 1792 when a menacing mob breached the formidable walls of the Tuileries, subjecting the royal family to a torrent of insults and threats. Faced with an escalating sense of peril, the desperate queen, in a bid for survival, implored foreign powers to intervene further and stem the tide of the revolutionary fervor. Much anticipated foreign intervention materialized in the form of the Brunswick Manifesto issued in July of 1792. Instead of stabilizing the precarious situation, this proclamation served as a catalyst for the infamous August 10th uprising. During this tumultuous event is when they raided the palace again. Marie Antoinette sought refuge in the legislative assembly. Their refuge, however, proved to be short-lived as they were subsequently thrust in the harsh imprisonment confines of the temple, the temple tower as it were. The brutality of the revolution found tragic manifestation in the fate of Princess de Lambelle, a member of the royal entourage who met a grisly end with her head being displayed, a gruesome symbol of before the grieving queen, allegedly being marched outside to where the queen was held. Marie did not see the head of her friend, but she was stricken with grief when told about it. Yeah, I bet. On September 21st, 1792, the once mighty monarchy officially crumbled making way for the ascendance of the National Convention to assume control. With a symbolic stripping of the royal's family name, the stage was set for the impending trial of Louis, the, of Louis XVI in a court of law, marking the irreversible transformation of France into a republic firmly under control of the revolutionary force. His trial was not in the same vein as typical courts. Uh, a, con a convention of the revolutionaries involved was the court, and so you could probably assume how well that went. Louis XVI was accused of collusion with Russia, or with Prussia and Austria, which isn't completely baseless. He was adamant that his actions were for the best interest of France, but the revolutionaries did not see it that way. The trial, if you want to call it that, began on December, uh, in December of 1792 and was short-lived, concluding in a guilty verdict on January 15, 1793, by way of majority of 693 votes as guilty, with 23 abstaining. 721 total deputies focused, uh, voted once again on a decision on sentencing. Reported 36 hours of voting took place with 288 voting in favor of deathless end with you know imprisonment or exile being the ultimate goal. Fortunately for Louis, 361 voted for his death. Now there was a motion the following day for an appeal with new votes taken and 310 voted for mercy, but 380 now voted for death, so his, his fate was sealed. And on January 21st, 1793, almost almost 231 years ago, the guillotine fell and the cold mistress of iron took another victim. Following his death, he was thrown in a mass grave and others were who were killed while onlookers soaked rags in his blood. Legends also include that his last words being cut short literally and figuratively by a general who was present ordering a drum roll to signify the beginning of the process. You know, he had this big speech he was about to make and they're like, alright. <laughs> Some say he screamed afterwards, but it's pretty doubtful since the guillotine would have been a very rapid death device and the executioner stated that he died bravely. With Louis now gone, the fate 
fate, rem fate of the remaining family was not known. All of the family was in prison, but with Louis, Joseph's death in 1789, and Sophie's infancy in infancy, the two children rema remaining were treated about as good as you could expect. Oldest, Marie-Therese Charlotte, would make it out of the revolution alive. But before I explain what happened to Louis Charles, I will continue this chronological nightmare. As the three remaining stayed in the temple, things were not super great. Similar to lead to that of Joan of Arc, the guards harassed the family regularly, taunting the queen with smoke in her face, teasing her, following any of the numerous failed escape attempts that, you know, she would make. There were bribes that were given to the guards, and this would get her and uh, or her constituents so far, but they would not earn her freedom that she had attempted them to do. After the former king's beheading, revolutionaries now scratched their heads with what to do with the former queen. There was promising effort to try and exchange her for French POWs uh, from, from her brother, the Holy Roman Emperor. Of course, similarly to her husband, exile was also on the table. In August 1793, Marie Antoinette moved into the conciergerie, which was a prison, uh, to begin the final stages of her life. Upon being separated from her children she was lied to said there was a plot to kidnap the the dolphin but that was not true they just wanted to take him away and she was devastated many thought that with louis charles's young age he could be retrained into being on the side of the people and also testify against his mother plan did work and after one final escape attempt her trial was set on october 14th her trial began accusations were really wild this time around which included inclusion of some of the propaganda pamphlets that i mentioned before as evidence that's how you know it's bad using things that are specifically fictional to bring out the scorn on a specific group or person good thing that doesn't happen anymore Anyway, <laughs> so in addition to the many things those pamphlets accused her of, Marie Antoinette was also accused of stealing millions from the treasury and funneling it back to Austria, being the mastermind behind the massacre that took place years prior at the hands of the National Guard. And most disturbing is that the accusers found a way to manipulate Louis Charles into accusing his mother of molestation against him. This particular charge had earned the gasps of mothers in the audience, which, you know, Marie spoke to them of the ridiculous nature instead of responding to those accusers she responded to the mothers and it seemed like they were on her side but they were probably the only ones two days later she was found guilty of theft of the treasury conspiracy against the state and high treason the latter based in reality since she had technically given french military secrets away to her brother before her arrest on october 16 1793 the same day as her conviction she was given paper to write her last letters to her daughter and sister the letter to her sister you can find online i would read it but it is too long to do so like but it's very good at noon she was escorted to the guillotine where she was she wished to be dressed in all black but they made her wear a white dress which was custom for the widowed queens at the time they cut her hair off bound her hands behind her back and led her to her fate there's also a famous legend that she accidentally stepped on the executioner's shoe before saying pardon me sir and did not do it on purpose I mean, she said it in French, but you get it. Pardonnez-moi, monsieur. Je n'ai le parfait express. I don't know. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, shortly after the blades came for the 37-year-old, she was also given a burial in an unmarked grave. But before that, the famous Madame Toussaint had done a death mask on her. I think she did one on her husband as well. You can find pictures of the death mask, which is kind of neat. It uh, strips away all the pompousness of the portraits of the time. You know, how like everybody in portraits.
parts of the 1700s kind of looks the same. Like you can actually see the real person from this. It's very fascinating. And you know, obviously her death was not the end. The reign of terror continued in the inf as the infamous Robespierre uh, mounted further revolutionary action. Now, while his mother was executed, Louis Charles was being tormented by guards for being refused food, not being let out of the cell, and so on. Ten days before his mother was beheaded, Louis Charles met with his sister Marie Theresa uh, Charlotte for one final time. He fi he became ill and refused to speak ever since the day he was forced to testify his mother, which is saying something. Louis Charles would die in June of 1795 after a bout of scrofulous, which is... <laughs> I guess symptomatic from tuberculosis is how I read it, but it doesn't end there. Yeah, he was buried in the same unmarked grave as his family, but beforehand the physician overseeing his autopsy stole his heart and hid it in a bottle of distilled wine. And eventually when the restoration occurred after, you know, after Napoleon, he tried to give it to the child's uncle, but Louis the 18th was not about it. He eventually, uh, they, but they kept it and it was eventually tested and found to be true DNA match of the heart of Louis the uh, Louis Charles. And there was a man at the time who claimed to be the surviving dolphin, like a weird like Anastasia phenomenon. And that guy was proven wrong because of this. The only person who escaped the revolution intact uh, from this family was the eldest daughter, Marie Therese Charlotte. She was held in the Temple Tower, unknowing what fate befell her family until August of 1795, two months following the death of her last immediate relative. Inside her room, one of the most human and depressing notes was found scratched in the wall. It said, Marie Therese Charlotte is the most unhappy person in the world. She can obtain no news of her mother, nor be reunited with her, though she is asked a thousand times. Live, my good mother, whom I love well, but of whom I hear but of whom I can hear no tidings oh father watch over me from heaven above oh my god forgive those who have made my parents suffer that's kind of heartbreaking eventually t the teenager was released and uh, transferred to Vienna in exchange not dissimilar to that proposed for her mother a few years prior she had just turned 17 and was free to uh, and, and free and would live to be 72 but yeah it's crazy only like a few months before her release is when she found out what exactly happened to her mother two years prior that's crazy to me she had to have known anyway as for the revolution well there's a lot of tumultuous actions that took place but I covered them in the Napoleon episode so if you haven't listened to that one go ahead and listen to that next so you can continue the story congruently Marie Antoinette ladies and gentlemen what a what a wild life she lived and like so much antagonizing from those French people I started the research not really sure where I lay with my opinions about her but there are cases of her having just reckless abandon with her flaunting of wealth but she was also no different than anyone else at the time does that excuse her actions no no, but it is weird that she's always focused on as the total opulence supreme. Do I think she was out of touch with the plight of the common person in France? Seems like it, but is that a reason to chop her head off? No, probably not. Seems very murky. She did give away military secrets during an ongoing war, so that is straight up treason. But what do you think? Was this interesting at all? Did you learn anything? Like I think for me personally, it, it humanized the royal family in a way that, you know, can only happen when you do learn about something so intently. I think it's still very hard for me not to side with the people of France and their decision since the spending was just so out of control. Like, regardless of how human and how nice these people might have been, like, <laughs> royal families did spend way too much money. These people were poor, hungry, and she's walking around with model ships in her hair, you know? Like, that's just... Just uh, a little tone deaf. One thing we didn't talk about is her tone deaf response to the hunger of people. Why? Well, because she never uttered the famous words, let them eat cake. The famous story goes that uh, when told about people not having bread to eat, she suggests that they should just eat cake instead. Now this actually comes from a different Marie, one from a hundred years prior. It was actually attributed to her when 
Marie Antoinette would have been 10 by philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his 1766 writings called Confession. So, not our gal. Most historians agree that she was a little too sensible to say something so out of touch. And if you go look at that letter that I told you about that she wrote her sister while she's in prison, kind of know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so what do you think? Are you satisfied? Do you do you need cake? Share your thoughts on this episode with everybody in the Facebook group, YouTube comments. Uh, share the show with your friends. Anybody you know would appreciate it. I would appreciate that. Check out all the links. Go to the description. All the links are in the description. Um, some of our cool friends, that other podcast that I do, West of Nowhere. You can find all those links in the description. And yeah, that's kind of it. So I'll see you next time. Bye.